You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's, what day is it? It's Thursday, February the 3rd, 2022. This is Alf speaking from the Netherlands, author of the Macro Compass and contributor to Real Vision. And today I have the honor to have with me a guy that only few people can understand, the one and only exquisite Michael Gayed, who is the CIO and portfolio manager of Toroso Investments. Michael, how are you doing? Uh, I'm definitely not atrocious, so I appreciate all that. <laughs> hey, welcome here. And um, so today is a pretty interesting move uh, day in markets. We have the Nasdaq being completely slaughtered after a few companies have released pretty bleak outlooks on uh, on earnings over there. And I know that you have some opinion on some of these uh, names here and there and high beta tech stocks, so we will cover those. We also had the ECB today, European Central Bank, coming out with quite an interesting press conference. Uh, Michael, shall we maybe start from uh, the move that we're seeing in the stock market? It's pretty atrocious what's going on, especially in certain sectors. What's your take there? Well, it's funny you said you couldn't remember what day it was because it seems like Groundhog Day is every day, You know, even though it was just yesterday, right? The, the same kind of market action is, is persisting. So I keep making this point that um, we're probably not. We have not really seen risk off just yet. As much as January was uh, pretty harsh for most risk-seeking investors, the reality is, and I know you've talked about this as well in your own research, it did not have the earmarkers of what a classic risk-off environment is. Right? And when I say risk-off, what I'm really talking about are dynamics in terms of volatility not only changing, but in terms of certain intermarket relationships um, manifesting in a very particular way. Typically, when you're in a real risk-off scenario, credit spreads widen. Okay, now, why is that? If you were to overlay credit spreads against the VIX, you'll see pretty much a one-for-one -one relationship. Because when you have volatility in equities, there becomes a repricing of default risk premiums. So high yield becomes higher yield in that kind of a period. Instead, what we saw in January was not credit spreads widening, but I'd argue more of a shift in the entire bond market largely on sort of this realization that inflation is here to stay. Uh, and if that's the case, then we could still see a bigger decline yet to come, just as everybody seems to think that the decline may already be over. Yeah. And interestingly, you mentioned, Michael, credit spreads, something we've been discussing here for a while already. And uh, was it interesting that Powell during the press conference was asked multiple times about um, financial conditions? And he said he was not impressed, right? And one of the reasons that he said he was not impressed is because, uh, you know, financial conditions weren't threatening his dual mandate. But if you look at the components within the financial condition index, credit spreads were the ones that were holding their ground the best, right? You didn't have much widening in junk credit spreads. I just pulled up a chart to show how these credit spreads in, in the low rated portion of, uh, of uh, corporate bonds have actually widened pretty aggressively, right? They seem to have broken out of a range that they kept for a while. What does this tell you, Michael? Are you, are you really you know, worried? And does it have cross-asset implication, as you were saying before? Yeah, I think it's, it, it's possible. First of all, the time to worry about credit spreads is when they're very narrow. 
because just like volatility, it's very mean reverting, sort of these these waves of narrowing and 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 widening. And it's interesting, right? Because spreads tend to stay narrow when inflation's high, because the idea is, is that junk debt issuer issuers end up uh, having to pay back their debt with dollars that are worth less, right? Yeah. So there's a link between inflation expectations and spread movement, which might explain why some of what we've seen in January was not sort of the classic risk off in terms of spreads widening and blowing out to the same degree as beta sold off. Now, having said that, if the central banks around the world are as serious as they seem to be to try to counter inflation, we know that uh, it's very hard for them to thread the needle when so much of the system is so levered. So in, in a way that I would argue that they risk potentially a deleveraging uh, uh, deflationary pulse in their hiking of rates. And that may ultimately be because the stock market itself keeps going down. You and I were talking briefly before about this notion that the stock market is no longer just a leading indicator of the economy, but rather a driver of it through the wealth effect. And if you go with that narrative and that idea, well, then it seems to make sense that the way to break inflation is to break the stock market. <laughs> wow, this is such a powerful statement, Michael. So what you basically just said, if I can try to get my angle into that as well, I wrote an article at the Macro Compass, it's called The Macro Endgame, and talks about the fact that we have been basically living a wealth illusion effect. What we do is we, we basically lever up the private sector or the public sector or both at cheaper and cheaper borrowing costs. But while for the public sector, these borrowing costs are only risk-free real interest rates at the end of the day, for the private sector, you have to overlay credit spreads too. And so at some point, these junk companies find themselves with the rising real interest rates. That's what's happening today, right? Because central banks are trying to fight inflation. They want to lower inflation expectations. They rise, they, they push up nominal yields. So risk-free real interest rates go up. But also credit spreads now start to widen. So the aggregate refinancing costs in real terms for these junk companies goes up. And as you said before, well, that actually has a, a domino effect as well on risk premia. And so if you, if you break down this risk premia, you, you, you basically delever via, uh, via stock market losses the private sector. This is not, the I would say, the most gentle way of deleveraging and bringing back things to a more, um, let's say, controlled level when it comes to aggregate demand. But is there any other way that actually you think central banks could, could try to, to engineer a gentle tightening of some sort? I mean, probably not, because there's the options are, are fairly few uh, among all the things that they can do. A couple of things on that, though. So keep in mind, if spreads do start to widen, it's going to happen in an aggressive way. It's going to happen at a point where smaller camp companies look like death. So if you look at the Russell 2000, you look at the Russell one, uh, 2000 growth as an example. For all this talk about how it's been a bull market, we have been in a bear market since February of last year, True. period. I don't care what anybody says about these large cap averages. The vast majority of stocks peaked in February of last year. Now, if small caps, which are already pretty bombed out, if those companies now fundamentally have to deal with higher financing costs because spreads widen, if they stay wide whenever that occurs, that's a real nasty setup for defaults in a large number of com companies. There is a scenario where you can make an argument that you could have some real, re real devastation in the real economy if financial conditions, which for the Fed really is spreads, start to blow out in an aggressive way. The other complicating factor, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this too, Alf, is we know that historically when oil spikes, that tends to precede recessions. Last I checked, oil crossed above 90, I think, uh, at some point today. And that's not really a spike. When I say spike, I'm talking about like 150 in a matter of weeks, right? 
But you know better than I do, there's a lot of people smarter than me who are making the argument that we're sleepwalking into an energy crisis. And that would complicate everything that central banks are trying to do this year. Yeah, that's very much true. Don't tell me about oil because I'm short, so I'm bleeding big times. It's hurting. Um, but yeah, it seems to be relentless. You know, there is this, this tailwind of um, the green transition effectively and, and, and drawing down inventories that effectively generate structural tailwinds for some of these commodities while we try to transact to a system that will demand a lot more consumption of these commodities while the capex or so the production side of it seems not to be able to pick up. So the structural uh, transition is there. And if these tailwinds are really structural, as you said, they have, of course, second round effects both on, on inflation itself and on inflation expectations. So then for a central bank that's trying to tame these pressures, that's pretty tough. I tend to agree with you. Hey, everyone. We're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of today's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. I wanted to ask Michael your opinion about the stock market move. So, um, it's gathering a lot of interest to see this, this um, let's say, large market cap weighted indices having these large intraday swings. Like, you know, it's, it's pretty wild at days. We, I think last week we had the Nasdaq delivering the largest uh, intraday recovery ever recorded over the last, whatever, 50 years plus. So you and I discussed beforehand that you have this view of market internals telling you something here. So can you elaborate on that? Yeah, no, I mean, and it, this, I keep making this point that we're in a really nasty and tricky juncture because I do believe that there's an extreme tail event, some kind of low probability but high impact, black swanish type of uh, way that things could play out. The problem is it's not clear the direction. And I know that sounds strange because typically when people think about tail risks, they think about the downside, right? They think about the left tail, not the right tail. So here's the dilemma. To every storm, there's a magnitude to how bad the storm is, and there's a duration in time. So I go back to February of last year is when a lot of the stock market internally topped out. If you were to look at breadth charts, that's when breadth started deteriorating. You look at small caps, you look at emerging markets, you look at the speculative areas like ARC, that all topped in February, and it has been pretty unrelenting all the way throughout the entire past year. So on the one hand, the bears would argue that the generals are going to fall to the, sold, uh, to the soldiers, right? The large caps, which have been holding up the averages, will break down to everything else. That's your washout. That's your capitulation. But the other part of this is that because it's lasted for so long, maybe you have the exact opposite in an unbelievable way, meaning a huge relief rally in small caps, in emerging markets, in uh, uh, the archetype funds uh, strategies right? and, and underlying innovation type stocks, the areas which are very high price to sales. They could still ultimately go lower, right? But it's always about the sequence of returns when it comes to trading and investing to some extent relative to your own uh, behavioral responses. So because of that, because I think the tails are so uh, large on both ends, I was joking a little bit earlier that if I, if I could, I would probably consider something like buying out-of-the-money calls and out-of-the-money puts. Bet on the extremes because given the length of time these divergences have played out, 
uh, it's going to probably resolve itself in a very violent way. Yeah, so that that is a strategy that uh, we call well, UI, whoever is professionally involved in finance straddles, long straddles, where you basically effectively pay two time premium, one to buy a call, one to buy a put, both very out of the money, so that effectively you're betting on some volatility spike, one way or another to profit. And if nothing happens in the meantime, you just end up losing money, right? But if you're really convinced that you're going to break either up or down in a vicious way, being long uh, straddles, that's a strategy that we just discussed, out of the money call and out of the money puts, seems to be the right thing. Uh, when talking about ARK and, and Tesla, so let's say these very high beta uh, components of um, of some of the uh, of the indices and and you know especially the high tech stuff. Um, I would like to to get uh, the audience to first listen to a clip that was to an interview actually that was recorded at Rio Vision where Martin Leibovitz and Rob Arnott discuss the impact of low interest rates on the valuations of these high beta um, tech areas. And uh, Rob had some interesting thoughts on that. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me that people think that low interest rates uh, should uh, create higher valuation multiples. And again, there's there's so much uh, narrative driving markets that is not supported by empirical data. If if low rates would create an environment where equity valuation multiples should be high, well, what about the 1950s? Two percent rates and an earnings yield of ten. Uh, oh, the 1930s. Yeah. And, and for that matter, if, if rates of just under 2% are fine for U.S. valuations to be at 38 times the 10-year earnings, why in Japan and Europe, where 10-year rates are essentially zero, why do their valuation multiples come in 30 40% below ours instead of massively higher. Uh, that doesn't make sense. Uh, so the interview is available on Real Vision for the Essential Plus and Pro Tiers if you want to listen to what Rob was saying there. And further, I mean, the Japanese example where 10-year interest rates have been basically at zero for a long while, and together with the fact that therefore real interest rates also were dropping while the valuations weren't picking up, is interesting, but I mean, coming back to the Tesla and Arc story, whose valuations, by the way, were very large too, Michael. We uh, we had a chat beforehand because you have a pretty interesting theory on the Tesla Arc uh, story and, and uh, correlation back and forth. Do you want to help us understand what that is? Yeah, no, and, and real quick on that point that I think Arnaud is one hundred percent spot on. It kind of goes back to this this narrative of don't fight the Fed. I always go back to what in the world does that even mean? Because I'm pretty sure if you if you fought the Fed by shorting small caps, which all of those dollars are supposed to help because they're most tied to the domestic economy, you would have won that battle, right? Again, so, so these narratives, I always rant on this on my Twitter on Lee Lag Report account. There's so many narratives that don't make sense if you just ask a few questions deeper, right? And kind of start tearing these apart. Okay, now on this, uh, so I go back to, okay, we're in an environment where I think there's an extreme Let's play out the negative extreme for a moment. There's, I think, a really interesting structural dynamic here, which I keep teasing out. And I talk from the standpoint of somebody who runs funds, who knows how fund flows work, right, with my mutual fund, my ETFs, you see the tickers in the background here. But there's this really amazing phenomenon when it comes to ARK, when it comes to Kathy Wood, ARKK, where the enormous drawdown in performance is actually greater than the drawdown in assets under management in ARC. 
Now, that's unusual because if you've been in the business, typically assets follow performance. So as something performs poorly, assets start getting sold. People start bombing out of the position. People have actually been buying into ARC. So they've had net inflows actually from the last check, a billion plus over the last year or so, despite performance looking terrible. Now, what if that reverses? What if you have capitulation in investor behavior where people say, the hell with it, I'm not going to touch this thing anymore. I want out of ARC, some kind of real nasty sell-off in the ARC fund. Well, the largest position of ARKK is Tesla. That's like, I think last I checked around 8%. If ARC goes down because you have massive investor redemptions, you better believe there's going to be all kinds of domino effects on Tesla, which has all kinds of domino effects on the broad market averages, which could result in broader massive deleveraging and potentially a global margin call. I know that sounds like a strange concept, but we live in a chaotic system where butterflies flapping their wings can create hurricanes. And given how much margin there is in the markets, it's not impossible to see something like that really create a nasty, nasty setup for the bulls. This is a pretty interesting theory. It's basically a reflexivity bias of right. a large fund attracting a lot of interest, owning a large cup stock that then has a, uh, an effect as a butterfly effect, basically, on, on large cap indexes and, and therefore on the entire risk-taking appetite from, from market participants out there. So basically, investors should be watching out for this market internals and this cross-asset correlation and sometimes even these reflexivity biases, right, Michael? That, that's what you're saying. Yeah, and, it, and it's, it's also fascinating, right, because you're even seeing it with, with Meta, Facebook, and, and the effect that one company has on, on the broader, quote-unquote, stock market. You know, the classic argument in investing is you want to diversify to get rid of company-specific idiosyncratic risk. Yeah, true. Right? Every company has idiosyncratic risk, so you diversify so that you, they end up crossing each other out. Well, what happens when idiosyncratic risk exists in the large cap averages because five or six stocks are about a quarter of, of the entire market cap of the S&P? You see days like today. So it's not, it's, I, I, I really do believe that people are underestimating how much idiosyncratic risk they are having in a so called diversified portfolio of 500 stocks. Yeah, I have to agree with you. I, I always call the SP 500 the SP 5 yep. for a very good reason. <laughs> it's just part of the game. I mean, there are also ways to get exposure to the stock market that are not market cap weighted. I mean, there is also a very relatively liquid and low expense ratio, equal weight ETF as well, if you want to get exposure to let's say, the beta of being exposed to the stock market. But it's, it's of course, much more common to quote indices which are market cap weighted. Uh, changing a bit topic, Michael, today as well, we had a pretty important uh, central bank meeting, actually two. One was Bank of England this morning, and the other one was the European Central Bank. And actually, both gave a very similar hawkish outcome. So Bank of England raised rates by 25 basis point, but there are nine people on the MPC of the on the Monetary Policy Committee of the Bank of England, and four of these nine guys voted for a 50 basis point hike. So we were very close to getting the, the auction surprise of the 50 basis point hike, and then you move to the European Central Bank, and they are known to be probably together with the Bank of Japan, the most dovish global central bank amongst developed markets. But today, Lagarde couldn't keep it. I mean, she went out and literally said, that they they will be working on their forward guidance going forward, and they will probably much most likely uh, remove the QE and taper it back to zero much faster than market expected, which gives as well a, a very decent chance the European Central Bank is going to hike rates this year, and therefore you know follow into into the hawkish footsteps 
of the Federal Reserve. How do you see this interaction between central banks? I posted on Twitter today, people are obsessed, were obsessing in 2016 about FX worse on the devaluation side. Yeah. How are we looking here at FX worse on the, on the appreciation side, where you don't want to be left behind because your currency then devaluates too much, feeding an already relatively high inflation expectation? Is that the thing? And how, how do you see the interconnection among central banks here? Yeah, well, I mean, as we know, they're all talking to each other, right? I mean, that's, that's, there's no question about it. So there's a degree of coordination in, certainly, I think, at least in the communication side of things. I, you know, it, it's interesting, right? Because I think there there's a legitimate argument that the central banks have to uh, be ultra hawkish and probably do more, almost like a surprise rate hikes, because there is a situation where if they hike rates gradually, uh, assuming the stock markets respectively don't crash, right, to break inflation, which is a big assumption, don't get me wrong. But you know, there, there is a scenario where if you hike rates gradually, it's actually inflationary, counter to what they what they want. Why is it inflationary? Because think about it, if you're driving and you have XM Sirius radio on or, or something, and you hear a commercial, what's one of the things you hear nowadays? Lock in low rates before they go up, which is basically the idea that velocity of money could suddenly turn up as we are starting to hike rates because people and corporations want to lock in the lower rates. So you have this really interesting dynamic where arguably central banks around the world have to act perhaps more hawkish than anybody thinks if they really want to break inflation, because if they don't, they may actually add more fuel to the inflation fire. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty interesting thought. And um, the, the fact that even the most dovish sides of the central bank um, spectrum across the world are now joining the bandwagon of having to hike and even perhaps surprise on the upside, validating already hawkish bond market pricing, but even sometimes going a step further and not cutting the right tail. I mean, before we discussed plenty of times about uh, tail events, right? I mean, you, you talked about out of the money calls, out of the money puts, et cetera, et cetera. What central banks are doing here, I argue, is that literally they are um, voluntarily not cutting the right tail of their um, or, or of their monetary policy distribution. And so I have a chart on the screen for people who are looking to, to you know, um, simplify this visually, but also for people who are listening to the podcast. What central banks here are trying to do, they're trying to move the pricing, the distribution of pricing to the right. So of course, you're, you're left to price in a more hawkish, aggressive stance from central banks. But each distribution also, as Michael said before, has a left tail and a right tail, right? And so the left tail is very dovish. They, they don't hike. They just don't do it. And the right tail is they hike seven times, eight times. They do 50 basis point hikes. They, they, you know, they just deliver a big hawkish surprise. And before 2022, central banks are always very keen to remain in the body of this distribution. They don't like very you know tail driven outcomes because they can't control the outcome then and the repercussions very easily but these times both powell and lagarde and other central banks around the world have decided deliberately not to cut the right tail and even sometimes confirming and giving green light to market to further price some relatively right tail hawkish actions in 2022 i find that to be a pretty interesting development michael what do you think yeah no i agree and that's why this is a year where I liken this to everybody walking a minefield because you don't like it goes back to there's so many so many risks out there for for everybody including the central banks because they created the debt beast which prevents them from really hiking rates to to a more normalized level because debt is so high yeah. you know, from all their constant re-leveraging it's like as much as they get credit for crises they somehow never get the blame for actually creating the crisis that they come in to to try to fix 
So, so uh, no, listen, I, I agree with you. And, and, and I go back to this is why this is so, so treacherous. I'm sure, you know, Alf, you've seen a lot of those, those charts that look at margin levels and equities and how it's yeah. just started to turn over, just started to turn over. I mean, there is a really nasty setup here where the stock market breaks. And now what's the Fed and ECP going to do? I mean, they're going to have to do, they can't just come in and save the stock market because then it's going to be this narrative that they keep on saving Wall Street while Main Street is paying, you know, huge amounts of money for, for groceries, right? And, and at the end, here in the U.S., obviously, it's a, it's a political year. The midterms are coming up. There's other dynamics at play. But we are in an environment of, of walking through minefields. And all that means for investors is you're going to have to really reset your expectations because whatever you thought about the last cycle, this one that we're in now is looking totally different already and is probably going to surprise everybody both ways. Yeah, I think you're right. So the volatility aspect that you highlighted before with your strategy plays into this narrative. We're going to take another quick break to hear words from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Let's start to get some questions from the audience, uh, Michael, because we have quite a lot. So, um, we are getting a question. So we are seeing sell-offs in the U.S. equity and bond markets today, which would usually lead to a strong dollar performance due to an increased demand for the dollar. So um, do you think that foreign investors, mostly Europeans, have an appetite for dollar-denominated assets in this cycle? And why is that, if you think that is the case or not? I mean, partially, as you know, it depends on on Treasury yields, right, and, and the differential between U.S. government yields and and European yields, and uh, I'm pretty sure the the 10-year bond I think is now positive. I have yeah, to check on, right? So so you've got this kind of interesting dynamic where you may not have that same uh, degree of appetite for U.S. Treasuries and U.S. yield because I'm pretty sure yields going from negative to slightly positive in Germany, as an example, it's happening at a faster pace than the U.S. yields are moving, right? So that 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 alone probably. Uh, counters that that narrative. Keep in mind when you talk about the dollar, of course, and most people. When they talk about the dollar, they're looking at the broad dollar averages, which is 40% euro. The dollar against uh, emerging markets looks very different than, you know, you can argue than the euro, right? And there's all kinds of other dynamics at play there. But, you know, it, it's always been fascinating to talk about the dollar and the euro because it's always a battle of uh, who can import inflation. Yes. Right? And that used to always be why you'd want a weaker dollar or a weaker euro, because you wanted to import that inflation. Well, now nobody wants to import inflation. <laughs> yeah, and so that's the the so-called reverse effects war we were referring to before. My take on this is that um, as a European investor, if you if you want to have a globally diversified portfolio, long-term portfolio, then you normally are in a very tight spot where you look for decorrelated assets to growth. So assets that when growth is slowing down, they can protect you. They, historically, these assets were long bonds, let's say. But if you're a European investor, the best you can get is something that yields still below inflation rate and in, even in nominal terms, mildly positive. Right. So of course, the buffer you're able to generate from that position to defend your drawdowns is not much. So you tend to be attracted to dollar assets because when there is a risk off due to growth expectation being repriced and a deleveraging, if you're a European investor and you bought TLT, for example, then you not only get the higher 
uh, term premium and a higher yield in dollars, but you also get this, do this dollar tailwind. Now, Michael correctly said that if you reverse the situation, you start having higher yields domestically in Europe as well, then this appetite might, might wane a bit, but we'll have to see how that evolves as well. Um, the other question we have is uh, from Bruce that says, the bear has left the woods and is now on Main Street. What's your estimate, Michael, for the downside risk of the S&P 500? Because many forecast catastrophic losses that he disagrees with. Yeah, look, I, I go back to, look, unequivocally, first of all, it's very hard to know the magnitude of a crash. Right? I, I tend to def define a crash by not magnitude, but rather duration, right? How far back in time do you go? Right? It's really about duration and time, right? So historically, when you look at major crashes like 87, even yeah, arguably a good part of the 2020 crash, you end up giving back about nine, 10 months of performance, which is still pretty sizable, right? For the S&P, I don't know what the exact percentage is, but if history is any guide, that's, I think, how you would want to think about it, not in terms of how big the loss is, but how, many, how much time you give up, right, in that decline. Now, having said that, there's a really nasty, not to be overly bearish, but there's a really nasty implication here around what's happened with small caps. Because despite trillions of dollars of stimulus, despite falling unemployment, record growth, reflation, uh, uh, every single thing, stimulus, stimmy checks, all this stuff, despite all that, they peaked in February. You look at small caps, like I mentioned small cap uh, growth, Russell 2000 growth, it, it, it looks like it's in a complete bear market, just complete straight down. Normally you say to yourself, well, that's just a chart, who cares? It's not just who cares. If all that money wasn't enough to push small caps, what's it going to take? So that's not to be overly you know, scary in what I'm saying, but I think people need to realize that in the context of everything that's happened from a stimulus perspective, from a fiscal and monetary perspective, yes, you can paint a really nasty lost decade type of scenario because it seems like no amount of money is enough. Well, what Michael said is just so important. So for people who are watching and not listening, I, have, I, I wear a T-shirt that says central banks don't print money because they print bank reserves instead. But Michael just figured out that, that actually we did print money in huge sizes through 2020 and 2021 via fiscal stimulus, big times of size unprecedented that we have never seen happening so quick, so fast, and even commercial banks lend to the private sector on top because the governments were guaranteeing the losses, the potential losses. And even then, even then, the result out of this, you know, cyclical, very uh, real earnings driven uh, sectors of the stock market has been that they've of course picked up because earnings picked up as a result of all this true money creation. But then around mid of 2021, they basically peaked. And, and ever since we have seen a declining trend there, which is which is pretty important, which leads me to the last question from Christopher that is, uh, there's one for me, and uh, I want you to answer this too, but then a very funny one to close for you too. So consumer spending looks to have weakened in December and January in real terms. How does this impact uh, your view, guys, on, on slowing growth and decelerating inflation? So I'll take this first, Michael, and um, my models have been pointing uh, to slowing real growth uh, since the mid of last year. And that's because the credit impulse has described that peaked and we haven't really produced an incremental amount of credit that goes through the real economy since then. So as a result, you tend to still grow, but at a slowing pace. And we're seeing this unravel. So I'm not really surprised, Christopher, and I would ex my models at the macro compass point to this trend to continue throughout the first half of this year. 
because you know banks are picking up and lending a bit late cycle to the real economy, but not enough to materially change the picture. And from a fiscal side, I, I can't even remember when is the last time the private sector did see their last stimulus. So I'm, I'm not overly uh, surprised by that. Michael, what's your take? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll bring it back to uh, good old lumber and gold for a moment, because part of this discussion around consumer spending and, and credit relates to housing, right? Which is the reason why I keep focusing on lumber, because the average home has about 16,000 board feet of lumber. And lumber surged off of the lows uh, several months ago and recently has been collapsing. And I keep going back to this point that this is not my opinion. I, I, I have a research study that proves this quantitatively. I have an ETF that uses this, this trigger, RORO. Typically, when lumber is weak relative to gold, it suggests that housing is going to decelerate. And most major recessions also are preceded by weakness in housing because of the impact on the consumer and leveraging. So you have this other interesting dynamic, which maybe we can tease out for another Real Vision conversation around housing, perhaps having another uh, 2006 type of peak, which could have other implications longer term, which would help the Fed out in terms of inflation, but present with it other tail risks as well. I'm going to add one thing on housing uh, that Michael pointed out. It's very interesting. Uh, if you look at the global market portfolio so global if there was one global investor and he would own a market cap neutral portfolio how would that be composed many people would say equities would be 50 percent of that portfolio nope it would be global real estate it would be by far the largest market cap asset class of the world so looking at the developments in in mark to market in housing it impacts big times with second round effects and first round effects too the behavior of consumers. So I, I do agree with Michael. It's it's a paramount important indicator. And now the very last question, Michael, for you from Christopher again. How many is few exactly? Uh, somewhere between exquisite and atrocious. I think we can conclude the Real Vision daily briefing with this great last sentence from Michael. Thanks again for for watching the Real Vision daily briefing, guys. Maggie will be here tomorrow with Harry Melandri. And uh, as always, the conversation continues on the exchange at Real Vision website. Michael, thank you again for being here. Great to talk to you. Thank you, Alf. I appreciate it. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.